Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hebrews. Let's talk about the genre of Hebrews. It's listed as an epistle. It's listed as a letter. But is it a letter? Categorically and historically, there's been some debate about this. I would probably say that it's actually a sermon that has been put into letter form. So think about a guy standing up and preaching this, and you're listening to his sermon. This is a sermon manuscript in the form of a letter given to an audience. And we'll talk about that in just a a few moments. Here's the interesting thing about Hebrews. The author is anonymous. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's not a lot of information about the, the location of where this was to be taken place. There's not a lot of information about the audience and the context of this book. So we've got an anonymous author. And so anytime you have an anonymous author, there's always the question, well, what are the different options of who it is? And so I'm going to take us down a little trail tonight to look at all the different options that have been proposed throughout church history on the authorship of, of Hebrews. So um, the first option that's, that, that was presented, and this has kind of been the early church traditional view, is that Paul, Paul wrote Hebrews. Clement of Alexandria and Origen, those names might not mean anything to you, but those were early church fathers. They were the ones that basically um, espoused the view that Paul wrote Hebrews. Now, let's talk about reasons why it's probably not Paul. Okay. Number one, you guys help me. Every other letter that Paul wrote, what did, how does he start his letter? Paul, an apostle. Why all of a sudden on one of these letters would he not put his... His name. So that's, that may give us an idea of, of, of why would Paul put his name on all the other letters, but on Hebrews he doesn't. Okay? Let's just look real quick at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. We'll, we'll, we'll come back and start at the beginning, but there's internal evidence in Hebrews that gives us a clue. So in verse 2, I mean chapter 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard. So the writer of Hebrews is not a first-hand witness of Jesus and did not receive his message from Jesus. What do we know about Paul? Did he receive his message directly from Jesus? Yes, on the road to Damascus and also at his time in the Arabian wilderness. So internal evidence suggests it's probably not Paul because... Paul had eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Also, the vocabulary and the style and the way that the Greek text is written does not lend itself to sound like Paul. There's just not a lot of Pauline vocabulary in there. And also, there's one huge motif, and we'll look at that motif tonight in the book of Hebrews. That's the high priest, the high priestly nature of Jesus. Nowhere else in any of all other of Paul's writings does he present Jesus as a high priest. And so why all of a sudden would this be something new? So we can say it's possibly Paul, but there's probably enough internal evidence to say it's not. Another viewpoint is that it was Luke or a close associate of Paul. It's kind of a new, it's kind of a new view. 
Some people look at the writing style and say, you know, this is very Lukeish in the way that the Greek works. But you kind of have to wonder, Luke was a Gentile. Would a Gentile have this much information related to the Old Testament? So that's, that's another possibly Luke. There's another view that was also in the early church that it was Barnabas. This was espoused by Tertullian. Um, one thing we know about Barnabas is that he was a Jew and he was steeped in the Greek-speaking world, which Hebrews is written to Greek-speaking Jews. And so there could be evidence that it was, it was Barnabas. Apollos is another choice. You remember who Apollos was? This was first um, brought forth by Martin Luther. Um, Apollos, if you remember back from the book of Acts, he's Jewish. He's from Alexandria. He's from Egypt. He was very well-versed in the Old Testament. He learned the gospel secondhand. He, um, the, the only problem with Apollos is there's really no ancient church history attestation to him being the author. It came about when Martin Luther did it, so it would be the 1500s. So for 1,500 years before that, nobody said it was Apollos. It was Paul, Barnabas. Um, other people, I didn't put this on a sheet, some liberal scholars think it was Priscilla, the female traveling companion of Paul. Some German theologian has, you know, brought that up. Here's the best answer. We have an unknown author. And that's what we're going to have to live with. But what do we do know about this unknown author? What do we know about him? He's Jewish. He was not an eyewitness. He was very educated. Hebrews has the highest style of Greek in any of the New Testament writings. So whoever wrote this knew his Greek very, very well. He was probably trained in rhetoric because this reads like a very well-crafted sermon. He was also very educated in the... I'm going to write something up here on the board. If I write LXX, do you guys know what the LXX is? Anybody know what the LXX is? Anybody ever heard of the Septuagint? Okay. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was translated, the reason it's called LXX is because supposedly 70 Hebrew scholars got together and they translated the ancient Hebrew into Greek because during the time of Jesus and Paul, it was a Greek-speaking world. So a lot of the quotations from the book of Hebrews are actually taken from the Septuagint. Okay, he was a powerful preacher who wrote a powerful sermon. Again, this is a, a sermon as well as, as a letter. So who's the audience? Who is, who is this anonymous writer writing to? Jewish Christians, say so Christians who were Jewish in background, who were in grave danger of committing apostasy. Now we're going to talk about apostasy tonight, but what is apostasy? Apostano, to stand apart from. It means that they were tempted to say, you know what, I'm getting pressure from my Jewish believers. I'm facing persecution. It would be so nice to just go back to the temple system and go back and be a good Jew. But this, this whole Jesus stuff is too hard. So they were tempted to go back to their Old Testament ways of the sacrificial system, all the things. They were tempted to go back to Judaism. Can a true Christian go back to Judaism and be faithfully 
committed to Christ? No. And so there's this temptation. These Jewish Christians are tempted to go back. Okay? So we're going to look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, because it kind of sets the stage for this, this book. But I want to ask a, a, a general question. What's the ultimate aim of the book of Hebrews? There's a lot of aims, but here's the ultimate aim that I think of the book of Hebrews. It is to give us a glorious portrait of Christ to motivate us to persevere and endure the hardships of being a Christian in a world that hates Christians. You understand that? There's a temptation. The whole book of Hebrews has these warnings. Don't fall back. Don't turn back. Stay the course. So how do you stay the course in a world that that doesn't want you around? Do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Do you try harder? What is the writer of Hebrews going to do? He's going to say, look at Jesus and how glorious Jesus is. Now, back in um, May of 2007 at our old building, um, that weekend we invited our Desertia to come preach. And as I was preparing this message, I went back and listened to the sermon he preached on a Sunday morning. We're not going to listen to the whole sermon. We're going to listen to about maybe three or four minutes. But I thought it was powerful. The things that he said were powerful enough related to Hebrews that I thought it would be good for us to hear it. So hopefully you guys can hear this. Uh, this is the sermon that he preached on that Sunday morning. It's from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Um, let me make sure that my volume here is all the way up so that you guys can hear it. Um, this is on our church website. You can go find it. But what I wanted you to do is just hear the passion and, and, and kind of he kind of sets the stage for what the book of Hebrews is about. So here we go. That is of late, you've been tempted to go back Is it just possible that you're sitting here this morning and you find yourself tempted to return to a former manner of life because to your way of thinking it would seem to make your present situation much easier to endure? Oh, I understand, my friends. Judaism may not be the allurement for you away from Jesus Christ. Not with this group of people. But that is not to say that nothing else does. Maybe for you, the draw away from Jesus Christ is a lifestyle of pleasing your appetites. A lifestyle given over to the whole-souled pursuit of sexual excitement. The reckless pursuit of financial prosperity or, or professional ambition or success. Maybe you're here this morning as a high school student. And you think to yourself, you know, if I were not a Christian, I could cheat on a test to earn that scholarship. Steal from my parents to buy that new outfit. Shoot up steroids for the sake of enhancing my performance. And you could do it all without the slightest twinge of unrest in your conscience if you are not a Christian. Is it possible that at this very moment you are wrestling with these kinds of temptations? That frankly, as you sit here this morning, you are not altogether certain what you will do tomorrow? God has brought a word to you this morning. And that word is this. You mustn't turn away from Jesus Christ. You mustn't turn your back on Jesus Christ. You mustn't lessen your grip on Jesus Christ. To do so could prove to be catastrophic for the simple reason that every sin carries with it the seed of total apostasy. No man wakes up in the morning and says, Today I'm going to commit adultery. It's a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there. You have a little time, you have some of the devil, and before you know it, the guy wakes up in bed with someone who's not his wife. 
Every sin carries with it the seed of total apostasy. You say, but Art, you don't know what I have to live with. It's easy for you to say this, but it's not an easy thing for me to be a Christian. It costs me nearly every single day of my life. It costs me in my family. It costs me professionally. It costs me socially. How do you expect me to persevere with all of the difficulties and disappointments and hostilities and obstacles that come to me because I named the name of Jesus Christ? And the answer, my friend, is this. You persevere by steadily giving to yourself a reinvigorating vision of your unequally great Savior. And then, as a consequence, you'll discover you can't turn away from Him. That His greatness is too compelling, that His beauty is too overpowering, that rather than forsake Him, you'd rather give up everything else to have Him. You know, the statistics today are, 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 are unprecedented in proportion. Young men and women are leaving the church today like never before. Get to be 16, 17, 18, they are gone. And the church has tried to invent all kinds of uh, silly little ways to keep people here. We think, you know, uh, the, youth group, the youth group just isn't cool enough. And, and the music isn't contemporary enough. And the media isn't sophisticated enough. We're going to have to do those things if we're going to keep the young people here. And what I would beg you to understand, dear friends, is at the end of the day, all of that kind of thinking is adolescent. Young people are leaving the church today in unprecedented proportion, not because the youth group isn't cool enough, not because the music isn't contemporary enough, and not because the media isn't sophisticated enough. It is because our portrait of Jesus Christ isn't compelling enough. This is why young people are not going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Why? We've given them a vision of Jesus Christ that is nothing more really than a sanctified butler who exists to give us a good life. People don't take up their cross and follow a God like that. They don't go to the ends of the earth to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and to educate the ignorant and to illuminate the perishing for a God like that. But when we see Jesus in all of His beauty, in all of His splendor, in all of His grandeur, then we come to realize that He is the one for whom I will gladly sacrifice every other thing. Anyway, I, I just thought that that whole statement that He said about the way that the youth, would you agree with that, that we're not giving people a compelling enough vision of Christ? I'm hearing some amens. <laughs> Are we not giving people a compelling enough vision of, of Christ? One of the key words in the book of Hebrews is the word better. It shows up 13 times. It's a key word. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is better. Do you agree with that? Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. And so, why would they want to go back to all of the trappings of Judaism if Jesus is better? 
Well, that's the burden of the writer of Hebrews is to warn them, to, to, to give them a portrait of Christ to say Christ is better than all of that stuff that you had in Judaism. Don't go back to that because Christ is better. And how he starts the book in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is he gives seven, seven's not a mistake there, seven's a, a number for perfection, especially when we get to the book of Revelation. But he gives seven descriptions of Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. So let's read this compelling vision of Jesus from the very beginning of the opening words of the book of Hebrews because He wants to startle us. He wants to grab our attention. He wants to say, look at Jesus. This whole book is about the glory, the splendor, the majesty of Jesus as better. So let's, let's read chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. Okay, that's the Old Testament. God spoke through Moses. He spoke through Elijah. He spoke through the prophets. That was the Old Testament way that God brought His Word to bear among the people. Verse 2, But in these last days, how has God spoken? He has spoken to us by His Son. So Jesus is the final Word of God, the Word made flesh. God's final Word, His final stamp, if you will, is is Jesus. So we look at these descriptions. Through whom, oh, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So let's look at these seven descriptions of Jesus. Here's the first. He is the messianic heir of the universe. He is the messianic heir of the universe. Notice what it says there. Whom he appointed heir of all things. Now the word all things there in the original language carries the idea of the universe. He's the heir of all things. Now, this is taken from Psalm 2.2. Uh, I'm not sure why Tarina did not put up the actual scriptures on there. But um, let me go ahead and read these, these supporting scriptures to you. They should actually have been printed out, but you'll just have to trust that I'm, I'm reading these from the scriptures. Okay, so Psalm 2.8. Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm where God the Father is prophesying in the future that He's going to give His Son the nations as an inheritance. And what did God promise Abraham? All the nations will be blessed. So in a sense, Jesus has received the nations as an inheritance. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? He takes it a bit further. Not just the nations, but the entire universe. So Jesus owns the entire universe. Well, not only does he own the entire universe, but number two, he's the creator of the entire universe. That's the second glorious description. Notice what it says there. Through whom he also created the world. Jesus created the world. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week when we looked at that hymn in Colossians. But what does John 1.3 say? John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians 1.16, we looked at this last week, for 
By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Okay, so number one, He owns the universe. Number two, He created the universe. Number three, He is the radiant glory and exact representation of God. Verse three, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, this word radiance is the only time this word shows up in the Bible. It's a very special, powerful word that means a shining forth, a breaking forth, okay? What's the difference between a reflector and a flashlight? Okay, does... does yeah, the reflector just reflects light. Like if you're driving, like we have reflectors on our parking lot as you come in from um, Ballpark Road and you turn left because if you, there's, no, there's not a lot of light there. There's reflectors there that reflect your headlights, okay? This word radiance doesn't mean Jesus is a reflector. Yeah, he reflects God's glory. It's more like he's the headlight. He radiates God's glory. He's the visible expression of the glory of God. And it says there he's the exact imprint the exact imprint. It was often used of a, of a coin or a stamp that would mark the identity of a letter or a coin. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that everything that God is, the God that we cannot see, the God that is glorious, the God that is beautiful, the God that is powerfully excellent, the God we cannot see, all of that beauty and glory has been put into Christ and physically and visibly He's the radiation of all of the glory of God. He is exactly God, distinct in person from the Father, but everything that God is, Christ radiates out in all of His glory and His majesty. That's a mind-boggling thing to think about. So He's the owner of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. He's the radiating glory of God. And then He sustains all things by His powerful Word. He upholds the universe or sustains, another way to translate that word, by the word of his power. Now, what's deism? Anybody know what deism is? It's what our founding fathers kind of believe. It's the idea that God is kind of like the proverbial cosmic watchmaker. And he makes the watch, and he winds up the watch, and then he puts his hands off the watch and lets the watch just wind down. Deism says that's how God created the earth. He, he kind of set it in motion, Wound up the world, he's hands off, God's not involved in his creation, it's just kind of going its course. That's not what Jesus does. It says he sustains. He sustains it. He keeps the universe going. Have you ever seen those old um, images of Atlas? Who was Atlas? Not your Atlas, but who was Atlas? The Greek god in mythology. That What did he do? He held up the world on his shoulders. That's not the image here. It's not like Jesus is holding up the world on his shoulders. This word sustains really carries the idea of he's moving it forward. He's keeping it going to its appointed end. It's not just Jesus is holding everything together. It's Jesus holds everything together, and he's bringing it to his ultimate end because he's in control. Does that give you confidence to know who's in control of this universe? Jesus owns the universe. Jesus created the universe. He's the exact radiation of God, and he sustains the word. How does he sustain the universe? By the power of his word. It's amazing. How was the world created? By the power of His Word. How are we changed? By the power of His Word. Everything comes back to the Word of God. 
And Jesus is the Word of God, isn't he? In the beginning was the Word. So he not only is the Word, speaks the Word, holds everything up by the Word. Word. You know, it's, he's, he's it. Okay. Now, the next thing is he made purification for sins. I have to say something. I Sure. Like a dog, you can say, yeah. sit and stay, but you the power of my word. The power of your word. But, you know, he holds the universe. Exactly. So stars don't burn. Stars don't burn and twinkle, little star, without Jesus telling them to do it. And here's the amazing thing. Every single inanimate object in the universe obeys Jesus. We're just the ones that don't. <laughs> Rocks obey him. If Jesus says, wind move the wind moves if jesus says stars and planets collide and create some type of supernova out in outer space they do that do they talk back and say no i don't want to do that jesus they obey because he holds everything up in the power of his word he made purification for sins notice what it says after making purification for sins now this is the, uh, the, the the way it's worded in the original language is he himself literally he himself made purification for sins and this whole idea of he himself was so interesting because this is the first allusion back to the Old Testament. Hebrews is going to keep taking us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. What was the sacrificial system? There was a high priest. He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would make a sacrifice for sins. He would make purification for sins. Was he the sacrifice? No, he had to sacrifice a bull or a goat or a lamb. Jesus, he himself made purification. No Old Testament priest could ever say, I myself made purification for sins. I may offer to sacrifice on behalf of the people, but no Old Testament priest could ever say, I myself made purification. Why could no priest ever say that? Because he was a human who had sin himself. Jesus is the only one that could say, I made purification. And this whole idea of purification is the idea that through the cross, we who are dirty, we who are unclean, we who are sinful, can be purified and clean and and washed and forgiven and, and brought back into a right relationship with God. The next one I love. He sat down after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high now we're going to be introduced to psalm 110 verse 1 psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted about four or five times in hebrews it's the key verse that the writer of hebrews keeps going back to here's what psalm 110 verse 1 says the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool we see it in chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 2. Here's the idea. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He ascended back up to heaven, and He is seated in the majesty of God at His right hand. Now let's talk about the significance of being seated and the significance of the right hand. Now remember what Philippians 2, 9-11 God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. It is very significant that Jesus sat down. Okay, if you go back and look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, and go back to Exodus and read how detailed God was in the furniture in the Holy of Holies. 
mean, it gets real detailed, right? You've got to have the bread of presence on the table. You've got to have the lampstand. You've got, you got to wash the utensils. There's all this stuff that the priests had to do. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, the priests were always doing this stuff. What one piece of furniture was not in the Holy of Holies? A chair, a bench, or a stool. Why? The priest could never sit down because he was always doing work. You could never sit down on the job. That's why different priests had to come in and take shifts. Jesus sat down. Was it because he was tired after he died on the cross? Well, he might. I mean, obviously, it's because it's, it's symbolic of it is finished. I've completed the work that God has called me to do. He sat down because it was the finished work of Christ. Where did he sit down? At the right hand. In the Old Testament, the right hand was a position of favor, victory, and power. When you sat at the right hand of the, of the king, it meant that you were in the highest position of honor. So where is Jesus right now? He's seated in heaven. This is called, we don't often talk about this in our churches. It's part of the gospel. It's called the, the session of Jesus. Have you ever heard that terminology, the session of Jesus? His death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session, second coming. We're very familiar with his life, right? Very familiar with his death. Very familiar with his resurrection. Very familiar with his coming back. But what is Jesus doing right now? That's a lot of what the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about. What is Jesus doing right now until he comes back? He's interceding. He's the mediator. He's seated at the right hand of the Father as our one mediator, as the completed, resurrected Christ. So he's the owner of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. He is the exact representation of the radiance of God. He is the, um, uh, that's what's next. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purifications for sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. And then he's superior to the angels. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, we're introduced again to this key word. It's translated here superior, but it's also the word better. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. It shows up 13 times. Now, what's the deal here with angels? It wasn't so much that Jesus was... um, There may have been angel worship in the church in Hebrews, but the issue was angels were considered to be the messengers of God who brought the word of God to Moses. And so... In the Hebrew way of thinking, angels were like the big deal because they mediated the word of God to Moses. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, these angels have nothing on Jesus because he is the final word. He's the ultimate. He's not just the messenger. He is the ultimate message. He, he is it. So when you look at this sevenfold description of Jesus, we see what we talked about last week, prophet priest and king what were the three offices in the old testament that a person was anointed to fulfill the work of a prophet a prophet did what preached and spoke god's word what did the priest do sacrificed on behalf of the sins of the people what did the king do rule and reign did any one person have all three of those offices no jesus fulfills all those he's the prophet through whom god spoke his final word He's the priest who has accomplished the finished work of salvation, and he's the king who sits enthroned in majesty as the sovereign ruler of the universe. That should compel you to stay focused on Christ. 
Jewish Christians, why do you want to go back to Judaism when this is who you have? So let me just ask you again. Is this a compelling portrait of Christ? It should be. That's the duh question. Is this the Christ that people see in our culture? You can say something, Shauna. You can say something. I was listening to the radio the other day, and one of the songs came on, and it's saying about Jesus is my friend. And I had to sit and think about that. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I just, that, like, like she's my friend. She's equal to, you know, you're my friend. You're equal to me. You can't, you, you can't say Jesus is your friend because it's just kind of diminishing what he really is. Mm-hmm. He's not just your friend. He needs to be your all in all, yeah. you know. And, and so I guess that song, it just like, it's like, I don't think I care for this song. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we need to be careful because Jesus is a friend of sinners, but when you minimize Jesus as, oh, he's my homeboy, he's my buddy, I can hang out with Jesus, is that the Jesus we see in chapters 1 through 3? Is it true that Jesus is our friend? Yes, but he's so much more. I think what it is, it's a minimized view of who Jesus is. It's a, it's a very truncated or it's not the whole picture. So what are we giving people in our culture? Are we giving Jesus as my homeboy? Or are we giving Jesus as the ultimate sovereign creator who holds the universe by the power of his word, who rules and reigns as the finished work of Christ at the right hand of God, who's the exact radiance of God, who owns and controls the universe? Do we give people that Jesus? That Jesus is scary. It's too hard. Okay. Scary in a good way. Do you guys remember the story? This just came to my mind. Do you guys remember um, the first line in the Witch and the Wardrobe book, or if you've seen the movie? when um, the four kids go to Mr. Beaver's den and they're talking about Aslan. And um, I think it was Lucy asked, you know, is he, is he scary? Is he nice? Is, is he, is, should I be afraid? Is he safe? Yeah, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about Aslan being safe? He's not safe, but he's good. And so it's this whole idea that Aslan's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is not safe, but he's good. Does that make sense? That's a good point. So what's the antidote to giving people? And it was kind of like what Artaxerti was saying in his message. Why are youth leaving the church? Or why is anybody? Because we're not giving them a compelling vision of Christ. How do we do that? Or why do you think people, why do you think churches in, in, in our evangelical culture is not giving a compelling picture of Christ? The biblical Christ. Is it lack of biblical literacy? Okay, it's getting away from teaching the Word. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's picking out the good stuff and thinking that, you know, throwing out candy all the time, and, you know, and trying to keep people interested with the with candy? exciting kind of, you know, kind of thing. Okay, a man-centered gospel. Do we, are we, are minimized our need we've minimized both things but I think the reason Jesus is downplayed is because we've downplayed our own need for mm-hmm. him yeah. nobody needs to need yeah. him Yeah, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay so why do we need a savior? if I'm okay and I'm really not that bad and I'm the captain of my own universe why would I want to worship this Christ? yeah I'll add him into my back pocket as my free ticket to heaven and then I'll pull him out whenever I need him but he's not going to be my, my all in all. And so right out of the chute, the writer of Hebrews says, stop, look, 
listen, Jesus is sevenfold superior, ultimately majestic. Let's move forward to the rest of the book of Hebrews with my job as the author to get your eyes fixed. Because my favorite, one of my favorite passage scriptures, and you know that because you've been around here long enough, is Hebrews 12 too. What does it say? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scoring the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. At the very end of the book, he does this. Okay, I've given you this whole portrait of Jesus. Now set your eyes on Jesus. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. What has he done? He's gone to the cross for you. Keep your eyes on this Jesus. Okay? Very good. Now let's go to chapter 4. I'm not going to do it. We're not going to go everything in Hebrews because um, there's just a lot in here. But chapter 4, he goes and hearkens back to that first, that first generation in, in, of the Israelites that went into the wilderness. You remember what happened that first generation? They disobeyed. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, we can take the land. Back in Numbers. And ten of them said, no, we can't. And so they disobeyed God and they wandered and they died. They were not able to enter the rest. They were not able to enter the, the, the promised land. They were disobedient. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be like that generation. What did that generation do? They hardened their heart. And he says, today when you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart like that generation did. So don't be like that Old Testament generation that lost out on salvation because they were disobedient. Don't, it's like a negative example. Don't be like them. So here's the question. How do we not be disobedient? What is the writer of Hebrews going to throw out there as the primary way that we stay on track? What would you think it would be? The Word of God. We've talked about it. So let's look at Hebrew, excuse me, Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. And you're very, very familiar with this passage of Scripture. Actually, let's start back at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's just what I've been talking about. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So this is speaking about the Word of God. It's living. It's active. Um, Is the Bible a dead book? No. What does the Word do? There's something very, very mysteriously powerful about the Word of God. Whether you read it on a page like this with ink and paper, or whether you're reading it on your phone tonight, or whether you're reading it on an iPad, or you're reading it on a computer screen, or you've got an electronic Bible, does it matter the apparatus that it comes in? What's inherently powerful about the Word of God? It is God-breathed, and when the Word comes to us, what does this Bible say it does? It slices and dices. I mean... I remember the old Ginsu knives when you were growing up, you know, the, the powerful knife. It's stronger than the Ginsu knife. It's, um, it, it, it pierces to the very core of who we are. Now, go back to Isaiah. Um, you don't have to go back there, but let me put you the scripture up there. Oh, actually, it is up here. This is from Isaiah chapter 55. You're probably familiar with this passage of scripture too. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return 
there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me, what? Empty or void. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when God's word goes out, what's it going to do? Exactly what God wants it to do. Does that mean that every time somebody's going to believe? Could it mean that sometimes God's word goes out in judgment? Sometimes God's word goes out in salvation. Regardless of how that word goes out, God has a purpose, and it's going to do what? It's going to pierce us. It's going to penetrate us. What does that scripture say? It's going to make us naked. We're going to be naked before the word. Have you? This is kind of weird, but have you ever, after you've read the Bible, just felt naked? I mean, I hate to put it in that type of terminology. Maybe put it in a better way. Have you felt totally shattered and exposed? And my goodness, this, this word has penetrated me so deep, I'm left with, I just need to repent. Has that ever happened to you when you read the word? I hope so. What It says here we're going to have to give an account. What does the Bible do? The Bible holds us accountable. If we were to stand before God, if we were to stand before God on the final day, in and of ourselves, what would be our due justice? If we stood before God, we just came before God and said, here I am, and we were not in Christ, we were not saved, we were not washed in His blood, we were not forgiven, we just showed up in heaven with, with our sin, what would be, our, what would be our, our experience? Condemnation. Okay. So, the Bible tells us that there's a coming day of judgment and everyone will have to give an account. What does Romans 2, 5 through 6 say? Romans 2, 5 through 6 says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. There's payday coming. So here's the ultimate question that anybody can ask. This is the ult- Whether people wake up thinking this question or not, Atheists don't think of this question. Pagans don't think of this question. But this is the ultimate question that every single human being ought to be asking. How am I made right with my Creator? That's the ultimate question. So what's the answer? If we die in our sins, we are exposed, we are naked, we are judged, and we are millions of miles short of God's infinite glory. What do we need? Jesus. We need a mediator. What's a mediator? It's a go-between. Holy God, sinful man, Jesus as the mediator brings us back together. We need a high priest. What was the high priest? We need a great high priest. Sorry. What does the high priest do? The high priest was the one who made... He represented the people. Could any old Israelite just walk into the Holy of Holies and say, Here I am, God. Here's my goat. Here's my bull. He would be struck down dead. Only the high priest... And what did he have to do? He had to go through all this purification. He had to get himself ready. Only he could go in there. And when he went in there, he represented the entire nation. He sacrificed for the entire people. And and he was the mediator. The people could not have direct access to God. Moses was like a mediator. So do we have direct access to God without Jesus? No. People may think they can just go to God. What does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we need a mediator. Well, let's keep moving. 
Because we have a hinge verse here. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, this is a hinge verse. This is, a, um, this is launching us into the rest of the book of Hebrews up until the very end of chapter 10, where he's going to camp out on what it means for Jesus to be the high priest. What does it mean for Jesus to be the mediator? How can Jesus help us on that day so that we're not exposed by God's word and laid naked before him in judgment? So let's look at verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This passage tells us three things. The first thing it tells us is that we can hold fast to our confession because of Jesus. What was the temptation of these Jews? I want to give up. I want to go back. I want to deny Jesus. And they're saying, no, because of the great high priest, because he's our mediator, you can stay strong. You can hold fast this confession. You can stick with the gospel. You can, you can stand up for Jesus. You can do it because of the mediator. The second thing this passage tells us is that Jesus was fully human and fully God and never once sinned in thought, word, or deed. He was tempted in every way we were, yet was what? Without sin now notice what it says there he was able he's not unable to sympathize how does jesus sympathize that word sympathize was often used of how a mother would have a unique bond with her child let me just ask you mothers do you have a unique bond with your children that other people don't have why because you gave birth to that child you're the only person on this planet that has that bond with your child because you did what you gave birth so there's that unique bond. That's kind of what this word means, but it goes a, a further than just the feeling of empathy. What did Jesus actually, actually do? He actually became a human and went through everything that we went through, suffered the way we did, died on the cross, experienced the ultimate death. And so we don't have a distant God who doesn't know what we're doing. Here's, here's what oftentimes people, this is kind of wasn't in my notes, but it just popped into my head. The issue of suffering. What, what, this, what is Christianity's answer to why they're suffering in the world that sets it apart from every other world religion? What, do other, what, what, what is the answer from other world religions? What do other world religions say about suffering? What does Buddhism say? Suffering is an illusion. It's not real. Well, that's real helpful when I'm suffering. It's not real. Just wait to be reincarnated and not have to suffer in your next life. Okay? What does Islam say about suffering? Well, it must just be the will of us in personal Allah. And when you die, hopefully you'll have you know, all these virgins and, and go, go have paradise. But it's really a distant and personal God that you have to fear. I really don't know why I'm suffering. Why, why is there suffering in the world? Every other religion doesn't have an answer. What does Christianity say? We have a God who didn't just say it was an illusion, doesn't just sit back. He entered into the suffering. God became flesh, entered into our suffering. He knows suffering just like every single one of us knows suffering and much more because what did he do? He took upon our sin and suffered ultimately so that you and I wouldn't have to suffer. So Christianity is the only world religion that has an answer to true suffering in the fact that God decided to leave the glories of heaven and enter right into our suffering and to alleviate our suffering through his suffering. Does that make sense? So Jesus sympathized with us. 
yet was without sin. He never, and this has always just kind of baffled me, Jesus never once sinned in thought, word, or deed as a teenager. Mary, go clean your room, Jesus. Yes, ma'am. In thought. Okay, we can think about words. Okay, Jesus never said a bad word. He's hitting the hammer. He never let a cuss word slip. Okay, we can probably understand that. He never went out and did murdered anybody. We can, we can look at that. But thought? Jesus never had a sinful thought. He never sinned in thought, word, and deed. What would happen if Jesus would have sinned? Would he have been the great high priest that would be qualified to go to the cross for us? No. He would be a sinner, and thus he could not die for sin. Okay, and then here's the last one, the third thing. Because of Christ and his cross, we can draw near to God's merciful throne with confidence. Let us then draw near. I love the, the imagery there of drawing near to God. How do we, this, is, this is the whole issue of prayer, worship, intimacy. We have access to the very throne room of God because of what Jesus did. And what does it say he promises to give us? Help in time of need. How often is that? All the time, isn't it? <laughs> Who of us here needs help? Who of us here needs mercy? Who of us here needs grace? Well, you know what? You don't have to wait for some priest to get you into the Holy of Holies to get, you know, you don't have to wait once a year to have your sins forgiven. You can go directly into the presence of your mighty God through Jesus, and he gives you that help in time of need, that great mercy. Okay? All right, now we're going to go into the deep end of the pool. Are you ready? Because Hebrews is one of the deepest books of the um, New Testament. It's very difficult to understand. There's a lot of weird concepts. When I talk about the word apostasy, do you guys know what I mean? That's a word we don't talk about a lot. That's part of it. Anybody here ever heard of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Okay, we're going to talk about that and how it relates to Hebrews chapter 4. So let's look at Hebrews chapter, I mean chapter 6, I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. You're probably familiar with this passage of Scripture, and it's a very confusing passage of Scripture, but I hope in the next 40 minutes or so to unpack it for you. For it is impossible. Let's just stop right there. Does he say improbable? What's the, word? What's the Greek word for impossible? Impossible. Okay, so he's not mincing words here. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If then they fall away, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, we've got a passage of Scripture here that says it's impossible to bring somebody back to repentance if they fall away. How do we deal with that? I'm glad you asked. Let's go back to Mark chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. And then we'll come back to Hebrews because I want to show you how I think two, two, doctrines, in the, uh, two doctrines in the Bible are linked together. They may have different words, but I think they're, they're talking about the same concept. Okay? So Mark chapter 3, let's look at verses 22 through 30. 
Mark chapter 3, 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, in this passage of scripture, we have a sin that's never forgiven. In Hebrews chapter 6, we have it's impossible to restore and again to repentance. So you have the wording here of something that's an impossibility. What is it? Are you confused now? What is it? Well, let's talk about the context of Mark first. I've, I've often had people ask these questions. What if I've committed the unforgivable sin? Can I commit the unforgivable sin? What exactly is the unforgivable sin? And we have it right here. We have the unforgivable sin. Because what does Jesus say? Never has forgiveness. When Jesus says you never have forgiveness, that means there's a sin that's not forgiven. We need to understand what it is. Okay? Let's do, let, let's, let's do some, some work here. Okay, can we establish the fact that God is a God of immense forgiveness? Absolutely. What does Psalm 86.5 say? For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. True statement, right? God is loving, He's forgiving, God forgives. Psalm 103, 2 through 3, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forgetting all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Does Jesus forgive all sin? Yes. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, from the totality of Scripture, is Jesus a forgiving God? Yes. But let me just ask you a question. Is this forgiveness automatic are there conditions that have to be met before you actually receive the forgiveness that comes yes what are the conditions that have to be met for you to be able to be forgiven you must repent and what believe okay when you repent and when you believe your sins are forgiven who grants you the ability to repent and believe Specifically, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit grants you the gift of faith. The Holy Spirit gives you the... So there's a link between the Holy Spirit's role in your salvation. How is anybody going to come to faith unless what? The Holy Spirit does a work in their heart to do something. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts of sin. Uh, Holy Spirit. He convicts of sin. What else does He do? He regenerates... He um, opens blind eyes. He takes out our heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. So um, is the Holy Spirit indispensable to our salvation? 
Will we ever experience forgiveness without the role of the Holy Spirit? No. Okay, so just keep that in your mind. There's something related to the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to a point of of repenting and believing. Okay, what else does this passage of Scripture say? Blasphemy or speaking evil of God or rejecting Christ is still forgivable. If they're not, were not the case, none of us would be Christians here today. Did anybody ever use God's name in vain before they were a Christian? Did you blaspheme God's name? Okay. What does Jesus say there? All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Have you ever mocked the gospel? How many of you were saved the very first time you heard the gospel or did you... How many of you made fun of the gospel? So if you mock the gospel, if you made fun of the gospel, if you blaspheme God and you're a Christian now, then you've been forgiven. What about a man named Paul? What did Paul say in 1 Timothy? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus. So Paul himself was a blasphemer, but God saved him. So are you saved by blaspheming? Can you be saved if you're a blasphemer? Yes, we got an example here, Paul. Paul was a blasphemer. Okay, let's think of some really, really egregious sins. Who committed adultery and had uh, the wife of the, or had the husband of the person he committed adultery with killed? Okay, so don't you think it's a pretty big sin? If you commit adultery and murder, you're on the top of the list of sinners, right? I mean, that'd be pretty high. And you're also the king. David, what did he say in Psalm 32, 1 through 2? Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Was David forgiven of those grievous sins? Murder, adultery. Was Paul forgiven of blasphemy? Yes. Okay, let's think of some other Old Testament characters. Abraham lied. Noah got drunk. And Peter even denied Christ three times. But are all these men saved and in heaven? Yes. So, what is the unforgivable sin? Is it murder? No. Is it abortion? No. Is it homosexuality? No. Is it divorce? No. Is it lying? No. It's not those sins that we would list as part of the Ten Commandments. That's not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or to put it another way, apostasy. Now let's look at the immediate context of Mark. Let's go back up to chapter 1, 7 through 8. In chapter 1, 7 through 8, John the Baptist is announcing Jesus coming on the scene. He says to him, he preached saying, After me one who comes mightier than I am, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the mighty one. He's the strong one. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus when he was uh, baptized. The, the mighty one will come in power. So, so Jesus is the one who has come in the flesh. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. What happened at Jesus' baptism? Who spoke? 
the Father spoke and said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descended as a dove. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit to start His public ministry. He is God in the flesh, has God's stamp of approval on Him. How did the Pharisees respond to Jesus in the flesh? What are they doing here in this passage of Scripture? They're saying He's Satan. Were they denying His miracles? No. Were they denying that He was a powerful man? No, they weren't denying his miracles. They weren't denying his power. What they were doing was they were denying his identity. This man is of Satan. Because why else could he be doing these powerful things if he was not of Satan? Now go back up to chapter 3, verse 5. There's a very key verse there. The Pharisees. Each time Jesus would heal, each time Jesus would teach. In Mark's gospel, you have this repeated theme of the Pharisees. Chapter 3, verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus was upset at the Pharisees' what? Hardness of heart. Think about Pharaoh. If you'd seen nine plagues in front of you and you still hardened your heart, you must have a pretty hard heart. So the Pharisees are seeing Jesus in the flesh. They're hearing Him talk. They're seeing Him heal. They're seeing Him do all these things. And they're so hard in heart, they're saying, that cannot be the Son of God. That is a demon. That is of the devil. And Jesus says, they're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now here's the issue with these religious leaders. They have a clear knowledge of who Christ is and the power of the Holy Spirit working in Him. They don't deny His authority. They saw His miracles. They saw His teaching. It was the fact that they thought He was from Satan. Secondly, He's before their eyes in the flesh. These religious leaders have such a hardness of heart that they've put themselves beyond God's ordinary means of bringing them to faith. What is God's ordinary means of bringing a person to faith? The Holy Spirit. They've become so hardened that the Holy Spirit has said, I'm not going to work conviction in them because they've rejected, they've rejected, and they've rejected. I am hands off. They've put themselves in a position to where the Holy Spirit is not going to bring them to faith. What happens if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring you to faith? You don't come to faith. Therefore, you commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you can never be saved. Now, here's something also telling us about what this is. The tense of the verbs gives us a clue that this was a habitual, ongoing rejection. These Pharisees were in a what we'd call a prolonged state of hardness. It wasn't like one day they slipped and said a cuss word. It wasn't like one day they went out and, and, and they committed some sins here and there. It was a prolonged, dig my heels in the sand, defiant, stubborn, rebellious, hardened, I am not going to believe in Jesus and I'm outrightly, rebelliously doing it when He's right in front of my face and I've been exposed to Him. I am outright denying Him. Okay, that, that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a person that slips into occasional sins here. and It's an outright defiance. Now, let me give you what some systematic theologians have called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology writes this, This sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slander against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit 
respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. Here's what John Piper says. The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that He withdraws forever with this convicting power so that a person is never able to repent and thus be forgiven. Do you have a category in your mind for a person that's gotten so hard that the Holy Spirit refuses to do that? The Bible says it, there is. Now, Bishop J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool back in the late 100s, I like what he says. It's a union of light in the head but hatred in the heart. You've been exposed to Christ in front of you, but you've outrightly rejected Him. Here's a scary thought. There comes a time when the Holy Spirit withdraws forever His power to convict sinners and bring them to repentance. That person is beyond hope. They're never able to repent and receive forgiveness. Now, I'm going to talk about some careful things we need to think about. You can say that statement, everybody's like, oh! so let, let's keep going, okay? In the context of Mark... It is the intentional, willful, and defiant rejection of the gospel, not calmly, but with slanderous words that attribute the revelation of God to the devil. Now, some scholars have said, and I've read this in commentaries, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be committed today. And the reason why it can't be committed today is because Jesus is not in the flesh. To commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means that you have to be a Pharisee in the time, personally seeing Jesus doing miracles and attributing that to Satan. So therefore, you can't commit that today. I disagree with that. I think it can be committed today. And where we go to find that is back in Hebrews chapter 6. So let's turn back to Hebrews 6 because we've got two places in the Bible where Jesus says this sin's never going to be forgiven. And you also have this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 where it says it's impossible to bring a person to repentance. So what is apostasy? Do you have a category in your mind for those people who profess faith in Christ, were excited about the Lord, were really involved in church, and then now they are defiantly opposing, opposed to anything about Jesus and His gospel? You've got to have a category in your mind for that. Some people would say they've lost their salvation. Others would say they've committed the sin of apostasy. Either way, we're looking at something. What are we seeing? We're seeing a person that was excited for Jesus, but now they've dug their, their heels in the sand and they're blasphemous me, outrightly, defiantly saying, I hate Jesus. I absolutely want nothing to do with him. And I'm defiantly, stubbornly doing that over a prolonged period of time. And it's my lifestyle. It's not a person that gets occasionally upset at God. Yes, Don, go ahead. No, go ahead. Do false teachers fall into this category? Yes. I would say false teachers. I would say false teachers and false denominations can fall into apostasy. They're not outright saying they're hating Jesus, but apostasy has different grades, I guess you'd say. There's the, we're going to abandon the truth and waffle like a false teacher. That can be apostasy. But there's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit apostasy where it says, I am defiantly, aggressively, rigidly, dogmatically, prolongedly denying Christ vocally, vehemently, and yes. Okay, so if the, does the Holy Spirit leave, that, leave him or was he never with him? That's an excellent question. Did everybody hear the question? 
the answer to that question, I'll get it to in just a moment, the Holy Spirit was never with them. And, I, and Hebrews answers that. Okay? So we're not talking about a truly saved person that can commit that. I'm going to answer that question. Okay, does that, does that help you? Okay, let's keep going. Because that's my next question. Oh, you, you led right into it. Good segue, Shauna. Can a true, genuine, born-again Christian do this? Absolutely not. If you are truly a born-again, genuine Christian who's been saved by grace, the Bible from cover to cover teaches what? Eternal security. That you can't commit this apostasy. You can't commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So a true Christian cannot do that. Does that mean that we, we, don't, we don't ever sin? No. It just means that this thing... So, so here's, the, here's the statement I put. A true, born-again Christian cannot commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There will be times when you will sin grievously. You might even blaspheme the name of Christ. You may say the Lord's name in vain sometimes when you're mad. You may engage in things you thought you never would. But if you're truly saved, you can never get unsaved. Okay? So that begs the question. Okay, then who then? Who then can commit the impartable sin? If it's not born-again Christians, who are these people that apostatize? Let's give me, let me give you some background on Hebrews here. From chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews has been using the first person. What's first person? I, we, us. I, we, us. If he's writing to Christians and he says, I, we, us, who is he? He's a Christian. Who's he writing to? Christians. I, we, us. We, we are Christians. I'm a Christian. We are Christians. Us, us are Christians. But then in verse 4, I want you to notice something. He switches to using the third person. Notice what he says there. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. He goes on to talk about they, those. He's making a distinction between us and them. Up to this point, he's been saying, okay, here's two categories. The first category we're talking about is us. We're Christians. But then I'm switching to another category. I'm talking about a they, a those. Now I want to show you something. Go to chapter or go to verse 10. What does he switch what does he sw- switch back to? Though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What's he going back to in verse 9? He's, he's bringing it back to, okay, now we're, we've talked about them. Now we're coming back and talking about us. And what are we talking about us? Things that pertain to, specifically, what does the text say? Salvation. So what we're going to look at is a list of five things that the writer of Hebrews says these people do. But can we truly say these are things that pertain to salvation? Let's look. Okay. He's going to give a list of five benefits that these people have experienced in their close proximity to Jesus and in the church. But as we shall see, this answers your question, Shauna. They were never truly saved. Okay? He gives five five things. So what what are these five things? Back to verse 4. It's impossible to restore again to repentance those who've what? Once been enlightened. Now, I just want to ask you a question. 
When we look at these words, do these sound like words that are often used in the Bible to speak of salvation? Do you see words like grace, justification, forgiveness, imputed righteousness, redemption? Do you see any of these words in this list? What's the first word you see? They've been enlightened. What does that mean? They've just been kind of exposed to the Bible. They've been around church long enough to know that, okay, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. They've been enlightened. So let me ask you a question. Does blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the sin of apostasy, does this happen to pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa? No. They can't commit it because they've never been enlightened. Now, if they die in their sins, they will spend eternity in hell, but they can't commit apostasy because they had never, what? Professed faith in Christ in the first place. It happens in church. This is where it gets scary, guys. It happens. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and apostasy happen with church people, not pagans. People that are around church. Because look at these benefits. They've been enlightened. Okay, what's the second thing? They've tasted the heavenly gift. Probably salvation. They've tasted it. Now let me ask you a question. When you go to Cold Stone or you go to one of the ice cream places and, and you see all the flavors, what do they give you in those little, they give you what, that little spoon that you can sample, but then you have to buy the, the, the real ice cream. Did they taste salvation? Just kind of got a little taste of it? Or did they swallow and consume Jesus and, and digest him? They just tasted it. They just tasted it. They sampled Jesus. They tried him out but they didn't truly take him in as their all in all. So they've been enlightened. They know a little bit about Jesus. They've heard some good sermons. They maybe heard some good podcasts. They went to Sunday school. They maybe even gone on mission trips. They um, had tasted Jesus. Okay, the second thing, uh, they tasted, or they shared. They shared or were partakers in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a very interesting word the writer of Hebrews uses here, partakers. This, this word is never used anywhere else in the Bible to talk about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. What does it normally say about the Holy Spirit? We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're um, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This word means we kind of have a close association. Okay, so maybe you've seen people filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've seen miracles. Maybe you've seen evidences of God's power. You've seen the Holy Spirit at work. Can that happen to a person that hangs around church long enough? Will they hear good sermons? Will they have enough to just kind of try to sample Jesus? And will they see evidence of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Fourthly, the word tasted again, they tasted the goodness of the word of God. They, they, taste, they were under good teaching. They tasted how they heard a good message. They may have been moved. I can tell you of a guy that used to come to our church very, very briefly when I first came to Emmanuel. And um, he would come and sit and listen to my messages. And then after a few weeks, he made an appointment with me. And he came in and sat in my office. He goes, you know, you're a really great preacher. I love what you have to say, but I don't believe a word you say. And I'm like, okay. He goes, can I be a member of your church if I don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? And I said, no, you cannot. <laughs> and he said, well, I really want to come and hear you because you're just a really powerful speaker. I just I don't believe half the words you say, but I, I like to come listen to you. <laughs> that, that's right there. He, they tasted the power of the word of God, but it had no effect on them. That's how Benjamin Franklin was with George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin Loved to hear George Whitfield preach, and George Whitfield asked him, you know, why do you like to come hear me preach? I don't believe a word you're saying, but you do. 
And that's what, that's what draws me. You believe what you're saying, and I like that in you. I'm, I'm attracted to a person that's passionate about what they believe. I have no idea what you're saying, and I could care less, but you're passionate about it. Okay? They tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, the word for powers and miracles was used. They may have even seen miracles. They were at a healing service, and somebody's leg, you know, they started jumping around the aisles. You know, Benny Hinn was in the house, and they may have seen something crazy. So let me ask you a question. Where do all these things take place? In church, around church people. Who were the Pharisees? Were they pagans? They were religious leaders who grew up in church. Do we have any biblical evidence for a person that has done this? I'm glad you asked. Yes. Do we have biblical evidence for this? 2 Timothy 4.10 For Demas... In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The story of Demas, if you read Paul's epistles, Demas was a traveling companion of Paul that started out well. He was a leader in the church, and then he went AWOL, and it said, what did he do? He loved this world. He's deserted me. Anybody remember Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8? He was baptized by Philip, supposedly was a Christian, and then Peter gets in his face and says, you're a rebel and you're lost. Who's the ultimate example of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and apostasy? Judas. Do you think Judas... I think she got that back. Do you think Judas performed miracles? Do you think Judas was enlightened? Do you think Judas heard some good sermons? Yeah, I'm right next to Jesus for three years. Do you think Judas experienced the powers of the age to come? Was Judas saved? No. Now let me stop and give some pastoral care here because... Over the years, I've had, I've had times where I've had one time where a person called me sobbing on the phone. And they were hysterically sobbing, saying, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin. I think I've committed apostasy against the, or I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I told this person, I said, You know what? Let me just tell you in love, you haven't. Because the very fact that you're calling me and you're bothered by it and you're weeping over it is evidence that you haven't. Because if you had done it, you wouldn't care. There's some people that have very tender consciences that feel like, man, if I've just committed this really bad sin, I must be beyond God's reach and I've committed the unforgivable sin. If you're bothered by that and you're repentant and you're contrite, it's evidence you haven't committed that. Because what is it again? It's a hard, defiant feet in the sand. I'm going to belligerently, vocally blaspheme against God. Would you even, would it even bother you if you committed it? No. Wayne Grudem says this, in his systematic theology, the fact that the unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they have committed it yet still have sorrow for sin in their heart and desire to seek after God certainly do not fall into the category of those who are guilty of it. Now, I want you to notice, and I talked about this earlier, Jesus said it will never be forgiven. And here in Hebrews, it says it's impossible, not improbable, not unlikely, but impossible. So, and, and actually the word there, it is impossible. In the Greek text, impossible is the first word in the sentence. And sometimes in Greek, the first word in the sentence is, is used to, to draw attention to it. So he's basically telling you it's an impossibility here. So let me just, um, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and apostasy are not the committing of particular sins. It's not like lying. It's not drunkenness. It's not adultery. It is a falling away. What does he say there? It is impossible to restore again to repentance, 
Those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the words of God, the powers of the age to come, if then they fall away. Now let me give you just the word, the fall away is in the Greek tense there. It's not like, okay, I, you know, I kind of had a bad day. I'm, I'm not walking with Jesus. I'm, I'm kind of backslide. That term fallen away in the Greek text really has this idea of it's decisive, it's deliberate, it's willful, it's a rejected, it's conscious. You know you are doing it. It's the, the apostasy is not a particular sin. It is the sin of falling away for those who professed faith in Christ but never possessed faith in Christ. And it's a willful, dogmatic, hardened, um, you know, blasphemous, rigid, vocal, I'm doing this. Now, he gives a parable from agriculture. I don't necessarily have time to go into this, but what does he say in verse 9? If it bears thorns and thickles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What does Jesus say? You will know them by their fruit. Do you remember the parable of the soils? First three soils. First one not a Christian. Second one sprung up and looked like a Christian, but there was no root. Third one sprung up and got excited, but the cares of the world choked it out. What was the only one that was a Christian? The fourth one, because it produced a, there was fruit because there was root. And he says, probably evidence that these guys weren't Christians is there was no fruit to begin with. John Piper gives this illustration. Let me, let me read John Piper's illustration. He says, they're like buzzards. A buzzard spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating in the river. He lands and begins to eat. He knows it's dangerous because the, the falls are just ahead. But he looks at his wings and says to himself, I can fly to safety in an instant. And he goes on eating. Just before the ice goes over the falls, he spreads his wings to fly, but his claws are frozen in the ice and there's no escape. Neither in this age nor in the age to come. The spirit of holiness has forsaken the arrogant sinner forever. Let's get real practical here. How do we respond to this teaching? Well, here's a good word. The great promise from Scripture is that we find no instance of a person genuinely asking for forgiveness that God does not forgive them. Have you ever seen anybody in the Bible ask Jesus forgiveness and he said, no? So, there is forgiveness available to all who would repent and, and believe. Christ's arms are open wide, ready to take all in who would come to Him and despair over their sins. Second thing, we in no... Well, where is it? Is it on your sheets? No. I wonder if she didn't get the last... Well, let me tell you what the last one is. We in no way can stand in judgment and make a pronouncement that somebody has committed this sin. We can have, I can't say, I can't look at somebody and say, okay, you're an apostate and you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We don't have permission to make that statement. We can look at evidence in their life and say, my goodness, they're showing evidence of a hardness of heart. How do you treat a person who has a hardness of heart? Like a non-Christian in the sense that what do you do to them? You preach the gospel to them. And I've often shown this graph before. Um, Let me just draw this again. A lot of you have seen this before. Okay, here's the moment of your salvation. And here's heaven up here on the bar graph. Is your, is your path a straight line to heaven? I mean, are you like walking holiness? Your life looks like what? Your life has peaks and valleys. But if you plot your life, you're growing in holiness, right? 
What happens if we just took a snapshot of someone's life right there? What will we say? Okay, we may be looking at a snapshot of their life and we see them in the lowest point and we may be thinking that person's a, that person's a jerk, that person's an apostate, that person's fallen away. We don't see the end. So never give up hope. We may, we may only see this part of their life. We may not see all of that God sees them. So what do we do when we see a person in that? Do we just let them go and say, well, you know, you're in a bad spot. What do you do? You pray for them. You share the gospel with them. You love them. You warn them. That's what the writer of Hebrews does. He warns them. You, you warn people that they could be in danger of committing the sin of apostasy. Okay? Here's another thing that happens. Persecution is one of the main things that will show a person's true colors. A person that professes faith in Christ but then starts to get uncomfortable or starts to get some flack or starts to have to deal with some things, they're quick to bail. It's probably evidence that maybe they weren't saved in the first place. So this is a very, very heavy teaching. But my hope for you is that, number one, if you're a true Christian, you can't commit this. Number two, if you know someone who you think is committing this, don't write them off because we don't know the end of the story. And number three, it's a reality that it can be committed. So there's some parts in Hebrews that are most supposed to shake you to the core of your being and be afraid. And that's okay. There's sometimes you read the Bible and, and you should walk away being a little shaken. But if you truly are a Christian and you've repented and you believed, and so here's what oftentimes people tell me, like I, I, people ask me, well, how do I know I'm saved? I just don't feel saved today. Do you base it on your feeling? Because there's days I don't feel saved. So what, what I tell a person is, okay, if you don't feel saved and you're doubting your salvation and you're wondering if you're saved, your salvation is not based upon you. It's based upon what God's Word says is true about you. So what's, what does God's Word say about a person that's saved? God's Word says, if you repent and you believe, you will be saved. Have I repented and am I believing? Yes. The Bible says that if you um, love to be around God's people and you love to read His Word and that you desire Christ as your all in all and the Lord of your life, if you have that desire, you are saved. So don't base your salvation on what you feel but on what God's Word says is true about those who are Christians. And if you can say, I've done those things and by the authority of God's Word... And the promise that God makes, you are saved, not based upon how you feel. Does that, does that make sense? You're putting the authority in the Word of God, not in how you feel. Also, your salvation is not based upon a ritual that you did. Some of you were confirmed. Some of you walked forward at an altar call. Some of you said the sinner's prayer. Some of you got baptized. Some of you, I don't know what else you did. Some other thing. Did that save you? That may have been used by God to bring awareness of your salvation, but what saved you? Or who saved you? Jesus saved us. He holds us in His grip. He is the powerful one that can save. We don't put our trust in a past decision or ritual. We put our trust in who we are trusting today. 
and what the Bible says is true. Does, does that make sense? Am I, am I, I'm trying to leave you guys with hope because I don't want to leave you out there. We had a great talk tonight about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid I'm going to walk out here and be an apostate. That's not what I'm trying to, to say. I, I just want us to, to, to be aware that there are some heavy, heavy passages in the Scriptures that we have to deal with, but at the same time, I want us to give hope in the Gospel. Um, in one minute, are there any questions? So specifically, if somebody tells you that they don't believe anymore, just one of the paths he's taking them on. Specifically, how do you pray for that person? How do you pray for the person that says, I don't believe in God? Yes. I think, number one, you have to look at them as a non-believer. Because they're not claiming to be a believer. Are they claiming to be a believer? At one point, yes. At one point, yes, but now they're not. Okay. So what do you do with any person that's not a Christian? How do you pray for them? I think the things that you would pray for would be, Lord, would you please soften their heart? Because the Pharisees had a hard heart. It's got to start with a soft heart. Lord, soften their heart. Lord, open their eyes to who you are. Lord, bring situations in their life to get them to the bottom of the barrel to where they see you. And that may mean that they have to go through something painfully excruciating that you may not wish upon them, but maybe God's way of bringing them back to himself. And that's hard, especially if it's a child which, or, or whatever. And so open their eyes, soften their heart. Lord, bring a person into their life that's going to speak truth to them. Um, Lord, when I'm around them, give me opportunities to gently warn them and share with them. Still love them, but, but be bold. Is that, is that helpful? I think you can pray specifically. I think, we, I think we have prayed that. And then at the end of the day, this is where it gets hard. You, you can't control it. You have to trust that God is going to do the work. And what I say to people is never give up because if God can save Paul, who was a blasphemer, and if God can save David, who was an adulterer, and if God can save all of these people, nobody is beyond his reach of salvation. So have faith in the fact that God's reach extends to the worst of sinners and never lose hope because God God can save sinners. Does that help by... Emotionally, probably not, but and that's the hard part. I think we deal with emotions because, guys, this isn't just cold, hard theology. This is real life because a lot of you may have people that you know. And it's easy in a room like this to say, this is the theology. It's another thing to say, this is a person I know and I love. And so how do we lovingly yet firmly pray and evangelize and care for and, and, give, and give the gospel to people that that we think might be in the situation. At, and this is maybe a trite statement. At the end of the day, we have to trust in the sovereign God to do what God can do. Because you can't talk them into it. You can't talk them out of it. If they're going to get saved, it's because God's going to do it. Would you rather, rather trust in yourself to coerce them or would you rather trust in God to do it? The hard part is we want to. what do we want to do? want them to believe we want to move faith we want to create faith in them we want to we want to birth faith in them can we birth faith in anybody only god can do that what we can do is we can pray and the the exciting thing is god will use our prayers it could be god's ordained means to birth faith in them through our prayers so don't think you're praying in vain because when you pray that's god's ordained means of bringing that person to faith so never say, don't pray for a lost person because it's all figured out. No, God is using our prayers as his ordained means of bringing that person to faith. So pray like crazy for your lost friends. Does that, does that make sense?
pray, weep. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, knowing that in just a few days they were going to crucify him. He wept tears of compassion. Paul wept over the Romans. Remember what he said in Romans chapter um, 9? He, he wished that he could lose his own salvation for the sake of his, for his fellow Jews. He wept. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. So, sorry to leave it on a downer, but... Um, I got one. Yes, one, one of the... Um, one more thing. On, on the feeling, going back to being a feeling, um, I was told at the beginning of my walk, one of the ladies told me, it is never about a feeling, it's about a knowing. And that has just stuck with me. Through, you know, it's mm-hmm. like when you're not feeling it, well, it's not about you feeling anything. It's about you knowing the mm-hmm. truth. Yep, and that's so a good word. That's a good word. I'm glad you remember that, Sean. That's a good <laughs> word. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for grace, amazing grace, that reaches down and saves the most hardened of sinners, Lord. No sinner is beyond your grasp. No one is so hardened or so blasphemous that they can't be rescued. We look at Paul, we look at Peter, we look at David, we look at these men that we hold up as as great men of God that you reach down and save them. So, Father, help us to pray like crazy for for our loved ones and those we know that we're worried about. And, Lord, help us to realize that our praying is not in vain, but our our tears, our pleading, our our begging could be your ordained means of, of bringing them to faith. So help us to always have hope and never, never um, give up hope that you are a gracious God that can do all things. Um, with you, nothing is impossible, but with man, things are impossible. So help us to trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.